The following message is by Pastor Travis Cardwell. This sermon was preached at Baptist Church of the Redeemer. For more sermons, please visit bcredeemer.org. I want to read our passage uh, this morning, 1 Peter 2, verses 18 to 25, and then pray. So follow along with me as I read God's Word. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Father, what a, what just a rich passage before us this morning. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes to the beauty of Christ that's here and the way in which our understanding and relationship with Jesus changes our lives. It's not just a a theoretical understanding, but it changes us. It changes the way we think about justice and enduring injustice. Lord, we pray that you would so fill us with the beauty and robust glory of Christ that we could not help but model and follow his example. Lord, show us the path to follow Jesus. And we pray you'd also show us the the strength and the power that you provide for us to walk down that path. Lord, we need you and we ask for your help now as you look at your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Are you following Jesus? I wonder what comes to your mind when you think about or hear that phrase, following Jesus. In some ways, it's foreign to us because we haven't had the experience of attaching ourselves to a rabbi or a teacher and following him, dedicating our lives to his teachings, his understanding of the world. But we have our ideas of what what it means to follow Jesus. We Maybe we think of pictures of large groups of people, conference halls that are filled and Speakers, maybe famous speakers come to mind. Maybe sharing the gospel with a friend. 
Maybe reading your Bible. Maybe fighting against the social evils of our day. Maybe you think about great blessing and victory in your life because you're a follower of Jesus. Maybe following Jesus just sounds a little bit more active than saying you're a Christian, and so you prefer that. These are all all good things related to following Jesus, but this morning we have a a very clear illustration uh, and an unexpected illustration of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Peter says if you want to know what it looks like to follow Jesus, you need to understand what it's like to be a slave. In our passage, Peter speaks to the vulnerable, the most vulnerable, the lowest in the social structure of the Greco-Roman society, which, by the way, in and of itself is a lifting up of those who are in the lowest strata of that society, that he speaks directly to them. But he uses their experience as a paradigm, as an analogy for being a Christian, for following Jesus. Essentially, Peter's message is that slaves should be subject to their masters or servants, to their masters, even the unjust ones, for the sake of Christ. And when these slaves suffer for doing good, they will be rewarded by God. This is the picture of following Jesus that Peter draws out for us in this passage. It's, notice, rooted in the work of Jesus himself and his own endurance of injustice, both as our example and as our Savior. Last week, we introduced kind of the big idea in this section, which was submission to authority. Look there in verse 13, and just as you just kind of refresh your memory, chapter 2, verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And we saw how that even was, was more like every human creature. And that's kind of the controlling statement for this larger section that goes all the way through chapter 3, verse 7. And we saw last week how as citizens we should submit to to rulers and governments that have been put in place by God for our good. And we should do all this for the Lord's sake. We also saw the important reality that we submit ourselves not because we're forced to or because these authorities are ultimate in our life, but because actually we do this as people who are free in Christ. Look down at verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So in conversion, the Christian has not been released from service, but now has been given a new master. We're now God's servants, subjected to human authority for the Lord's sake, that the ignorance of foolish people would be silenced, and that they would see the truth, and that they themselves would see and follow Jesus. Beloved, this is a a timely word for us. God's word tends to be that way, relevant for us where we are. And again, we, we We must be balanced in the way that we think about and approach this text. Just like last week, Peter's call to obeying the government authorities doesn't rule out exceptions and and times when we must disobey the law to please God. Well, here, like elsewhere in the New Testament, we don't see really a frontal attack on the institution of slavery. But if you look closely, there is an attack. 
There's not a call to change the world through social programs or the like. Not that there isn't a place for working for justice in our day. There absolutely is. But here what we see is a call to be faithful no matter where we find ourselves in life. Even to endure injustice for the Lord's sake. Even to subject ourselves to unjust authorities that when we suffer unjustly, people would know why. Where is the source for this kind of obedience? Well, Peter tells us. When we follow Jesus like this, it won't take long for people to begin to look ahead of us to want to know who it is that we're actually following. The main point of our passage this morning is this. Jesus Christ exemplifies and empowers suffering for the glory of God. He exemplifies and empowers suffering for the glory of God for us. He exemplifies it, he's an example for it, and he empowers it through his atoning death on the cross. We're going to see this in, um, kind of laid out in three parts. If you have your, want to follow along your bulletin, you can. Three parts. Part one, we're going to see the call to faithful endurance. You see that in verses 18 to 20. As Peter calls slaves to endure injustice in their obedience to Christ. A call. Number two, part two, we see the example that Jesus sets for his faithful endurance in his own suffering. You see that in verses 21 and 23, 21 through 23. And then finally, number three, part three, you see the power for this faithful endurance. This is not pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. How Jesus enables us to do this, to follow him through his work on the cross. So Christ has suffered for us leaving us an example. Will we follow him? That's Peter's question to us this morning. So let's first look at the picture of a faithful slave or servant to show us the way. Number one, the call to faithful endurance. And just begin with that word servants in verse 18. Uh, very close, this is a picture of, uh, of, 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 of a kind of slavery, but with this nuance that refers to a, a household servant in Roman society, which we, would just, we could see and define as, as a kind of slavery. Slavery, especially for us who live in North America, has a particular connotation, doesn't it, based on our own history. And so let me just caution you and caution myself from reading our own history into these verses, kind of a one-to-one idea of what we we think is going on, when the context of Greco-Roman slavery and servanthood is different from the slavery in our country. It doesn't mean that it's good. It's just kind of a different kind of evil. But it's not the same. The two differences would be that the practice of slavery in, in this context that we're thinking about in 1 Peter was impermanent. So there would be ways for servants and slaves to be released from that slavery. It wouldn't be lifelong uh, slavery necessarily, unlike American slavery. And then it would not be based on race, unlike American slavery, which was totally based on race. In Peter's day, these slaves, these servants, uh, could have been born into slavery. They could have been captured in war or even sold themselves into slavery for financial reasons. Many of them lived miserably, especially those working in in mines 
in other areas. Yet others of them served as doctors, teachers, managers, musicians, artisans, and could even own other servants and slaves. Yet the slaves in the Greco-Roman world were under the complete control of their masters. They had no independent existences. They could and did suffer brutal mistreatment at the hands of their owners. And, and children born into slavery belonged not to the parents, but to the masters of the parents. They had no legal rights. I said earlier that we, we, we don't see a direct frontal attack on slavery here, but, but actually the Bible does pretty clearly attack what we think of as we think of slavery, particularly in our context. 1 Timothy 1 Paul's making a list of activities that are, he calls, contrary to sound doctrine. uh, Behavior that is against the glorious gospel in chapter 1, verse 10. And and one activity listed there is a noun translated enslavers. Enslavers. And and that is just a word that refers to those who would take a person captive in order to sell him or her into slavery. Which would be much closer to what you and I think of as we think about slavery. In our own country, in our world, kind of modern slavery. The Bible abhors this as a reprehensible sin. It is ungodly, unholy, and profane, verse 9 of chapter 1 of First Timothy. Now, for our situation, the, the household servants and slaves in the first century, instead of kind of railing against the, the institution itself, which, which probably would have had little effect given the kind of fledgling status of the church, The New Testament authors focus on the response of slaves and servants in order to maximize the witness to Christ. So think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 21 and following. He says, Were you bond slaves when you were called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can, gain your freedom. Avail yourself of the opportunity. But he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when he was called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain there with God. That passage has a lot of different corollaries in what we've been thinking about here in 1 Peter If you were born, Paul says, into this situation, seek to advance out of it if you can, but know this, you are actually free. In the Lord, you're a freedman of the Lord. That sounds exactly like 1 Peter 2.16. You are free. Submit as those who are free. He who is called as a bondservant is a freedman. Likewise, he who is free when he was called is actually a bondservant of Christ. Well, that's what he says in chapter 2, verse 16 as well of 1 Peter. You're a servant of God. You were bought with a price. So you see, the New Testament authors didn't go after kind of overhauling the social structures in the world, thinking that is really what's going to change the world. Their main concern was with people and their relationship to God. And they, they concentrated on their godly response, even to mistreatment. Of course, we know, don't we, when believers live this way, when we live godly lives Institutions and systems do often change, don't they? History demonstrates this. One of the consequences of Christian influence in this way would be the eradication of of slavery. But the opposite is true as well. 
Some Christians try to defend slavery, even using the Bible. And there's this black eye kind of on our Christian witness in, in history as well. There's nowhere in the Bible do we see a commendation of slavery. It is regulated, it is undermined. As we see in First Timothy, this extreme form of being enslavers is rejected. But the question is, stepping back, putting ourselves here in the kind of the reader's lap, how do you subject yourself in a godly way to such a wicked system? Look at verse 18 again. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So Peter is calling these servants to be subject to their masters in a particular way. And the ESV translates it as, with all respect. But the actual Greek is simply, with all fear. It's really what it says, with all fear. Now, with respect kind of suggests that the respect should be toward the masters, which I think is an implication and is also uh, true. It's an effect. But actually, I don't think that's what Peter is pointing to. He's just said, hadn't he, in verse 17, that we should fear God. And he lists others that we should honor, even the emperor, but he doesn't say fear the emperor. He says fear God. And here the word in verse 18 is phobos, meaning fear. So, so should these servants, who should they fear in their submission? They should fear God and God alone. Down in verse 19, you see the same idea come through. Look there. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows, sorrows while suffering unjustly. So, so this is how they were to, to do this, how they were able to do this, even with situations where their masters were unjust because they are ultimately submitting to God. Peter doesn't hesitate to call these masters unjust. Clearly, that's what they are. But the call to subject ourselves remains. Maybe even especially under unjust masters because this is a gracious thing, a powerful thing. It is a grace that enables someone to endure this kind of unjust suffering. It's a grace from God. But Peter clarifies, doesn't he, that this suffering and mistreatment is for doing good, not for wrongdoing on our part. So look there at verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. The rhetorical question in verse 20 just makes the statement clearly. Suffering because of sin is just a natural consequence. There, there's nothing particular Christian about that. So, so children, you're not really suffering for Jesus when you're in your room because you disobeyed your parents. That's not persecution. Peter is talking about enduring sorrows while suffering unjustly, about doing good and suffering because of it, enduring the consequences of obedience to Jesus. That is a gracious thing in the sight of the Lord. I think those phrases, what credit is it to us? What credit? And then it's a gracious thing in the sight of the Lord. Those are pointing to this idea of receiving commendation or a reward from from God. 
He's pleased by this. He rewards those who bear up under unjust suffering. He will make it up to them one day. It's another way I think that you see just kind of the the undergirding attack on slavery. Think about this whole situation. Why would you be suffering for doing good? Why would you be suffering if you're doing good? Why would a, a servant or a slave be beaten by an unjust master for doing good? Well, doesn't it picture a slave or a servant being ordered to do something that was against Jesus, against Jesus' teaching or will or, or God's will? Perhaps he's ordered to, to, to kill or abuse another servant or to steal something from someone else or to do evil on behalf of the master or worship the master's household gods, which was very common. Well, no, it's clear here when the slave would refuse, he'd be beaten for it. And, he, and, and if he didn't retaliate, Peter says, that doesn't make any earthly sense. That begs the question, why are you doing this? What is so precious to you that you'd be willing to endure beatings for it and not retaliate? You'd still submit to this authority. So there's absolutely a suggestion here that, that, that good deeds, doing good, uh, it trumps your subjection. They're being, they're being punished for obeying Jesus instead of their master. If you're here, if you're a Christian, there's several lessons I think we should take away from this. You see the direct transformation of people and what the effects that it has on life, even society's structures, even those that are patently unjust. It seems that, that Peter is, is interested here in the transformation of, of people. He doesn't seem to be optimistic about necessarily just reforming the world, but he's very optimistic about the power of the gospel and the effect it has on others to save and influence for good. Now, none of us in this room that I know of are, are slaves or household servants, but the principles of these verses certainly apply to us in our everyday lives, don't they? We have authority figures. We have bosses. We have teachers. We have coaches. We have parents. And we struggle to submit ourselves to those authorities that are around us. We all know that it's easy to be subject to a kind and Christian boss. Or it's easy to hustle for a coach that really likes us. Or to work hard in a class when we're the teacher's favorite. But friends, we are not released from this call to be faithful when our authority is unjust or unfair or unkind or when they don't like us. In fact, it's that obedience, that submission that Peter is actually getting at that gets people's attention. Ultimately, that gets God's attention. It's a gracious thing in the sight of God. Listen to Jesus, Luke 6. Verse 32, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that for you? There's that word credit again. Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good. Good. Is that doing good again 
and lend expecting, expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And, and I know that because I'm here. An ungrateful and evil person stands before you because of God's grace. Peter says that we do all of this. The, the nitty-gritty of how we actually do this. Okay, we get the principle. We do this in the fear of God. So we are, as we're doing it, as we're submitting, as we're, we're thinking about the circumstances of what we've just heard or what's just been done to us at the office or whatever it is, to think not about those circumstances, but to think about God, to be conscious of God when we do this. Not to think mainly about the injustice that others have done and what they deserve, but to think about what we deserve from God. How would the workplace and the classroom change if believers stopped retaliating and threatening and complaining and began joyfully embracing our roles and situations and focused on doing good to others around us? And the other side of that coin is also true here in this passage. If we're losing our jobs, not because we're bad workers, but because we won't compromise on God's word or God's will, some, some part of the ethics of the Christian life, that too pleases the Lord. Doing good is the priority, not keeping our jobs. See, that's easy for you to say, Pastor. You're your job is secure. You get to talk about these things. I got to go to work. Listen, I understand that. And I understand that, that changes are happening in those workplaces that you've never seen before, that we've never seen before. So be encouraged as you think about being faithful in your workplace. If you're fired, if you're demoted, if you're written up for obedience to Jesus, not, not for being a jerk, not for playing your sermon so loud that maybe your boss would hear it in the next room. Not for saying, I'm only going to wear Christian t-shirts. I'm not going to wear a suit. No, God is pleased when we are suffering for righteousness. We will be rewarded. Friends, this is Peter's call to endure suffering and mistreatment for doing good for Jesus' sake. But not just for his sake but in order to follow in his steps. So that's what it means to follow Jesus, right? To follow in his steps, to follow his example. That's part two in Peter's message here. Number two, the example of faithful endurance. The example of faithful endurance. Verse 21 sets up the rest of the passage. It's important, so look, look, with, look at it with me. Verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. That's an outline for the rest of the passage. The, the, this there in verse 21, this you have been called, that refers to what we've just seen in verses 18 to 20, suffering unjustly. You are called to that. Why? Because this is what Christ did. What did Christ do? Well, two aspects that you see there in verse 21 First, Christ suffered for you. He suffered for you. That points to his being a substitute in our place. He took our ultimate suffering and our sin upon himself. 
That is unpacked and explained in verses 24 and 25. But also, Christ did this to leave us an example, verse 21, that we might follow in his footsteps. So if you want to follow Jesus, that means following him not only in his teaching, but in his suffering. And this is what verses 21 to 23 are going to explain for us. His example. Both these elements of Christ's work have to be held together. It's very important. His substitutionary death in our place and the example that he sets for us to follow. Lest we be, on one hand, theological professionals without any love for people that are broken, or on the other hand, those who do lots of stuff for Jesus but don't know the gospel because we've lost the heart of it. We have to hold these two realities together. Peter does it really beautifully here. So notice Christ's example that he set for us to follow. Think about following in these footsteps. Verse 22. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus committed no sin. When Judas confessed about his betrayal of Jesus, this is what he said in Matthew 27, 4, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Hebrews 4, 15 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. 1 John 3, 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Not only was Jesus sinless in his life, but particularly when the pressure was put on, when he was unjustly accused and beaten and pierced and hung upon a cross, he did not sin. He did not respond sinfully. And I think this is where kind of it hits us in terms of modeling this walk, following in Jesus' footsteps. He's not calling us to a sinless life. He died so that we would be saved. But there wouldn't be legitimate reasons for our mistreatment. That we wouldn't sin our way into suffering. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. There was no deceit found in his mouth. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. Imagine the threats that Jesus could have, could have just said that were legitimate threats. Threats of certain judgment, scathing words about his innocence and the injustice of his death, and yet he was silent. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus prayed for the forgiveness of those who were actively beating and mocking and killing him. I don't know if you've picked up on this yet, but Isaiah 53 is just laid over this last part of the text. Perhaps you've noticed some of the connections already. Isaiah 53, 9 uh, says this, and they, they made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
More than any other New Testament author, Peter applies Isaiah 53 to Jesus Christ so clearly. Jesus placed his situation, his fate, his pain, even his enemy's fate in God's hands. Jesus knows that the Father will judge justly. Therefore, he does not need to retaliate. Brother and sister, hear that. Jesus knows that the Father will judge justly. Therefore, he does not need to retaliate. He can trust that justice will be done. Romans 12, 19, Paul echoes this. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Friend, this is what following Jesus looks like. Following his example. Think about your own life for a moment. Aren't we so quick? Aren't I so quick to just do the very opposite? To defend myself, ourselves. To defend our reputation by throwing harsh words right back at those that attack us. To actually seek vengeance. To revile in return. To gossip in return. To to push back. To open our mouths and attack. Brother and sister, do you believe that God will judge justly? That he's a just judge? Can you entrust yourself to that judgment and not seek your own? And in fact, love those who persecute you? What trust Jesus illustrates for us. What an example this is to follow. And we can pray that as we seek to follow this example to follow Jesus in our, in our lives, others would be brought to a saving knowledge of the one who died for them. Jesus exemplifies faithful endurance. And I think the obvious question is, we see that example laid out for us. Okay, but I'm not good at that. I, I can't do that. I'm, that's really hard for me. Let's look at, look at the third part here where Peter shows us the power for faithful endurance. The power for faithful endurance. Now the sinlessness of Christ, which he's already laid out for us, it sets an example for believers, right? It sets an example for us to turn away from our sin, to live righteous lives, to not be suffering for our own sin. But it is not just an example. It is much more than an example. The sinlessness of Christ is the basis for his atoning sacrifice for sinners on the cross. So it's only the perfect, sinless Son of God that could pay the sin debt that we owed and absorb God's wrath unto himself in our place, that could purchase redemption. And it's the salvation that Jesus brings that empowers our obedience, our following him. That's what I want you to to see. We can only follow if and because Jesus went first. So that's what I want you to see in verse 24. Look there. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Again, Isaiah 53, right? Ringing in our ears, verses four and five. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. That word born, B-O-R-N-E, born our sins, is often used in the Old Testament of carrying sacrifices. But Jesus wasn't carrying a sacrifice to the cross, was he? He was the sacrifice. He would bear our sins in his own body on the tree. The, the cross was the altar, his body the sacrifice. And Peter uses the, the word tree there just, just to, to catch, as, instead of cross, that meaning behind Deuteronomy 21, 23. We say this a lot in our, in our songs that we sing, refer to the cross as the tree. But that verse teaches that a man who is hung on a tree dies being accursed. And so Jesus became a curse for us. And what did that accomplish? Well, apart from our own salvation, the word that there, verse 24, tells us it should catch our eye. That means purpose. He did this so that. He died on the cross for the purpose of so that, notice, we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Friends, that's the key, right, to Peter's call to follow Jesus. We can walk in his footsteps. We can follow his example because he purchased us and has freed us from the power and and slavery of sin, and he's enabled us now to walk in righteousness. So at the cross, this, this achievement was done for us that we might have the power to fight sin. We have died to it. And we would also have the power to live toward righteousness, to live righteous lives. Not just with white-knuckled effort that we're going to try harder, but because Jesus purchased this for us. A newness of life, which is communicated. We're going to do that in just a few minutes as those folks come out of the water. We won't leave them under the water in baptism. They come out as a sign of their newness of life. So as you're fighting sin and you're fighting for joy and fighting to live a righteous life, make sure that you're fighting with these right weapons, the ones that Jesus purchased for us, tapping into this power that he, he, he bought for us. Knowing the secret to this kind of endurance is actually understanding that the battle has already been won for us. All the good, all the, the following and the bearing up under endurance, under injustice, is done in the power that Christ provides. He has healed us. Healed us by his wounds. What does healing mean? I think verse 25 explains, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Again, Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of of us all. Healing here is pictured as a return to the overseer, the shepherd of our souls. Because of sin, we've strayed, all of us. All of us have walked away from him. And Jesus brings us back. He died to bring us to God, to restore us, to heal us. So the wounds of Jesus are there to heal our spiritual disease. He bore our sins that we would no longer have to carry them. 
He endured the greatest injustice ever committed that we could be restored to our Creator and live forever with Him. Friend, are you still wandering from God? Do you see yourself as one of these sheep that is wandering away, not having any purpose or understanding of who God is or what your purpose is? Jesus came so that you would return, so that you could be healed from the wounds of your sinful rebellion against God. He came to bear your sin and to die and to rise again. Do you believe that? Will you follow him? It's only at Calvary that you'll find the strength and the the power to endure until the end because he's purchased it for us. Frederick Douglass once commented that slaves sing most when they are most unhappy. The songs of the slave represent the sorrows of his heart and he is relieved by them only as an aching heart is relieved by its tears. Very insightful and weighty observation. What could relieve a heart of someone who has been ridiculed and rejected and treated like an animal? What could bring healing to such wounds? Well, it's only the one who has gone before us and faced even greater injustice, even greater pain, even greater abuse. It's only the one that Isaiah calls the suffering servant. It's only in trusting in the power that he provides, entrusting ourselves to the one who judges justly that we can endure. Peter says we're to follow Jesus' example. That word example is, was used often to refer to the pattern of letters that children would do as they're learning the alphabet. And they would, they would learn to write and trace over those letters. The template would be laid down on paper, trace around it and practice and practice until you could draw it yourself. And that is what Peter is calling us to do. Not to follow Jesus' example as one of many other examples, but as the example, the way, the truth, the life. Peter will say later in his letter, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Brothers and sisters, we can now sing not out of sadness, but as those who have been healed and made free in Christ and who are now free to follow the suffering servant who has given us eternal life. Friend, are you following him? Let's pray. Lord, we pray that your word would change us and that we would seek not just to be hearers but doers. Lord, we pray that we would faithfully apply it in our lives. Lord, we need wisdom. We need wisdom as we're faced with injustice. We need wisdom as we're faced with difficulties that we see on the news or even in our own lives or in our jobs, in our family. We pray that you would provide it through your word. Help us to entrust ourselves to you. Help us to know and be reminded that you will judge perfectly. And Lord, may we be characterized by those that are free 
free from the judgment for our sins, that we're able to go and seek out those who are far from you. Lord, help us to follow Jesus' example because he has purchased us. Lord, we love you and we pray these things in his mighty name. Amen. For the glory of God, Baptist Church of the Redeemer seeks to obey Christ in the great commission task of making disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can find out about us at our website, bcredeemer.org.